Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims her handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Now, as a church, Chammers, as the church has a confession and statement of faith, It is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, the Bible is the rule of faith, of course, but as a church, we hold as our subordinate standard the Westminster Confession, where the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith taught in the Bible are summarized. Now, I think it will be helpful for us as a church to look together at what it says, to look together at what we believe. Now, why? Well, because it is what defines our corporate life as a church. It is what holds us to account. It is what holds me and my fellow elders to account. It is what holds us all to account. And as we study this confession, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. It is wonderful, heartwarming stuff. The Westminster Confession has been the backbone, the spine of many churches and denominations throughout the centuries, arguably more than any other confessional statement. It has guided the church through centuries of controversies. It has kept the church faithful to the Word of God and the Scriptures. It is exposed drift. It is what Christians have bled and died for. 
So studying this stuff is not for the few who have an academic interest or an historical interest. It is not for the few who have a theological interest. It is a real practical interest and benefit to us all. Now, the Confession has 33 chapters, and we're going to do one at a time. Now, just in case you're about to resign your membership of Chammers, not 33 weeks in a row, but two weeks in a row every few months. And then over the course of a few years, we'll get our heads around this systematic doctrinal uh, stuff. And our regular pattern on Sundays will remain, as it always is, to work through Bible books, because God has inspired the Bible in books. That's why we do it Sunday by Sunday. But from time to time, it is good, I think, to break into that rhythm and get our heads around what it is we believe. So, for example, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, what exactly is it we're saying and believing in our hearts? And the Confession is a much fuller version of that. Now, the 33 chapters do not cover every single thing in terms of Christian truth. They cover the basic essential stuff. It's basic essential Christian truth, but it's not covered basically. Yeah? So some of it is astonishingly simple and astonishingly profound. Some of it is stretching. But most of all, it will engage what people used to call affections in us as Christians. So I get to study it more than any of you because I've got to speak and teach the, the sermons. And this week, as I have done so, it has warmed my heart to be reminded that when I pick up this, as I do so every day in life, what an astonishing thing God has given us in this book. So, today, we're on chapter 1, and uh, you'll see inside the order of service that I've written it out in full. And whatever I have tried to do, I can't take the ten sections and turn them into three. It's impossible. So, we're going to have a ten-point talk, okay? And I guarantee you we'll be having our coffee by 11 o'clock. That gives me 26 minutes. Okay. There or thereabouts, at least. We did have a discussion yesterday in the wedding as to whether, when it got to the talk, we would keep to African, no, keep to British time and tradition or move to African time and tradition. And uh, I got the distinct impression that the congregation was up for the former. Right. Now, let's uh, uh, turn to uh, section one of the confession, which is on the Holy scriptures. Now, I have added, you'll see in the service sheet, a title for each section. That's not in the original. I've added that because it captures, I hope, what it's saying. So, section one, the necessity of scripture. Let's read it uh, together. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, 
It pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Now, these Westminster divines are marvelous, but they can't write in sentences. Here's the logic. There's like five stepping stones here. Number one, although, and I've underlined the breaks there, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. The point being made there is that God reveals himself, his goodness, wisdom, and power in nature, creation, and providence. So you, when you walk in the hills, we have folks staying with us who've just been up in some of the most beautiful parts of Scotland. When you walk in the hills, the beauty of nature reveals to you the existence of God. Last week, I traveled to Inverness by train. For me, Perthshire is the most beautiful part of Scotland. The train follows the River Tay through the forest close to Pitlochry. And that day, it was sunny, and the gaps in the trees in the forest just displayed a carpet of bluebells. Nature reveals the existence of God. Let me quote from one Bible verse. I'll just do this here in one other place. We don't have time to do this. The confession is saturated in the Bible. Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The revelation of God in nature leaves humanity without excuse, inexcusable. It means, I think, that for humanity there is no excuse to conclude that there is no God. A journey to Inverness on the train is enough to know that there is a God. Second proposition, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. And the point is that the revelation of God in creation and nature is not enough to save us. So you will not find salvation in the hills. A walk in the hills will reveal to you the existence of God such that you are without excuse, but it won't save to you because you do not see in the hills the knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary for salvation. Third proposition, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, God has revealed to the church, which means his people throughout history, his will regarding salvation. He's done it in different ways at different times, down through the centuries, culminating in the revelation of his will regarding salvation through his Son, the living Word. Fourth proposition, I'll not read the words of the confession again, that revelation culminating in the revelation of his will and his living Word, his Son, has been committed to writing. 
The knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation is written down in Scripture. Fifth proposition, which therefore makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary for salvation. To sum it up, Scripture, Holy Scripture, what you have in your hands, what you have on your laps, what you have on your app, your phone, whatever it is, is necessary for salvation. It is how we know about salvation. It is how we know we need to be saved. It is how we know God saves us through His Son dying on a cross. What priceless treasure we have in our hands. God's revealed will for humanity regarding salvation. And so what do we do? We preach it. We teach it. We read it. We study it. We translate it. We speak it. Because it saves people. Section 2. What is Scripture? Under the name of the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are the, I'll admit to read them, or the New Testament, which are they, all which are given, you're encouraging me by turning the page, that's good, all which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Holy Scripture, the words of God written, are the books of the Old and New Testaments, 66 of them, There they are listed in the confession. Now, what makes these books Holy Scripture? The answer, you'll see it at the end of the section, all which are given by the inspiration of God. These books, while written by human authors, were inspired by God, literally breathed out by God to Timothy 3. They're God's words. So, what is Scripture? God's words. That's what makes it Scripture, the Word of God, written. And therefore, Holy Scripture, to see what the confession says at the end of that section, is to be the rule of faith and life. Notice that the confession says Holy Scripture is to be the rule of faith in life. He doesn't say it is to be the supreme rule. It doesn't say it is to be this high rule along sort of all other rules. It says it is the rule of faith and life. And only these books, and all of these books, are the rule of faith and life. Now, if that is what Scripture is, what is it not? Well, the simple answer to that is everything else. Everything else might be very helpful, very edifying. We're on section 3, very enriching, but it's not Holy Scripture. It's not the Word of God. And in the Confession section 3, that point is made with reference to the Apocrypha. The book's commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of, rather other than human uh, writings. Now, you may have read or heard of the Apocrypha alongside the Old Testament scriptures, books like Tobit, the Wisdom of Solomon 1 and 2 Maccabees. I told somebody at the wedding yesterday that today's sermon would be on Tobit, and they nearly choked on their food. But they're the apocryphal books, and you may have seen them in, in some Bibles. And alongside the New Testament scriptures, books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Paul... 
And there are a number of Christian traditions that include some or all of these in the canon of Scripture. The Westminster Confession states that they are not inspired. They may be helpful and useful, but they are not inspired and therefore have no authority in the church. Now, let me just repeat that these books are useful and interesting. For example, I've just finished writing a book of Daniel, and we have drawn a lot of insights from books like 1 and 2 Maccabees. Now, I have floor-to-ceiling shelves of books in the study. Some books, old and new, are wonderfully insightful. But you do not need to turn, and you should not turn in the first place, to so-and-so's description of how you live as a Christian or how you function and work as a church, because they are not inspired. God's Word is inspired. Section four, we're doing well. This will be the first talk ever in my life as a minister where each section has had the same amount of time. You'll never see that again, this side of eternity. Where does the authority of Scripture come? Now, this stuff gets us into really profound territory. You see the logic? Section one, Scripture is necessary for salvation. You cannot become a Christian unless you believe in the revealed will of God as it is laid down in Scripture. This is what Scripture is, section 2. This is what it's not. Section 4, where does the authority come from? What gives this in your hand the authority of being the Word of God? The authority of the Holy Scripture, section 4, read with me, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. Now, the confession starts with an emphatic negative statement that the authority of Holy Scripture does not come from any individual or church. It is not for any individual or church to confer authority on Holy Scripture. It is not for any individual or church to say, this is Holy Scripture, or this is the Word of God. Because if that is the position you adopt, then what is to stop you from adding to or subtracting from the Word of God? And the answer is nothing, of course. And the drift from, and I guess now rapid departure of the church in the West from the Bible and fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith is precisely because the church has assumed the position of authority over the Bible. So where then does the authority of Holy Scripture come from? The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. The authority of Holy Scripture is not because the church confers authority. Rather, the authority depends wholly on God, who is truth itself, who is the author of Scripture through his divine inspiration. 
Or in other words, the Scripture has the authority of God within them. And the church submits to or recognizes that authority, not gives it. And because the authority of Scripture is from God, it has the power of God to save, to change people. That's what's being referred to at the end of the section. The Scriptures are to be received because it is the Word of God. One of the things I love about being a Christian minister is seeing the transforming power of the Word of God as it is received in people's lives. If people are willing to open their hearts and minds to its truth, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, changes them. It changes families. I could look at a family sitting on my right And the Word of God has completely changed them, all of them. The Word of God, with God's authority within it, changes churches. It changes nations. It's changing a nation like China. It's changed our nation in the past. It can do so again. Now, let me just emphasize this point, and you understand this, I think. There is all the difference in the world between a church, whether a denomination or an individual church, that takes a position of authority over the Word of God, and a church that submits to the authority of the Word of God. There is all the difference in the world between a church that rules over the Word and a church that is ruled by the Word. You'll have heard me say often that Chalmers Church is not my church, the eldest church, or your church. It is Jesus' church. He is the king and head of it, and he rules it through his Word. The living Word rules the church through the written Word. And if we take the position of authority as a church or an individual over the Word rather than the Word over us, then what we do is set aside a fundamental principle that takes the stable door off its hinges. And we add to and subtract from the Word of God. But if we commit to remain under the authority of God's Word, then we should expect and will expect and do see the power of God at work in people's lives. You see that why it's helpful for us to study this I'm not sure how helpful it would be to study this in days of of great advance in the gospel in a country. It's helpful to study this in days when that's not the case, when you've got to hold fast. Section 5. We're two minutes behind time. What persuades us as to the authority of Scripture? This is wonderful we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. So, somebody might look on and think, goodness me, the church in the world thinks Scripture is great. It must be great. It must be the Word of God. And the heavenliness of the matter, you just read it, and it's kind of good godly stuff. 
the efficacy of the doctrine. It's wonderful, it's systematic, it's logical, it makes sense of the world. The majesty of the style. I could read you some wonderful stuff, poetry, prophecy, it's majestic. The Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of the Lord Jesus, the concern of all the parts, the fact that it fits together, A plus B plus C, the scope of the whole which gives glory to God, the full discovery it makes of man's salvation, the many other things, the excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof might make you give your life to study Scripture as the most wonderful literature that you have ever read. But that will not convince you ever of the authority. It will not give you assurance like Sinclair had when he died in his bed, trusting in the Lord Jesus with all his heart, because to have that assurance needs... Look at what the confession says. Yet notwithstanding all these things, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. All the evidence out there objectively is persuasive. It might lead you to give your lifetime and energy to study the Bible as literature. You might love coming to church and listening to eloquent sermons, eloquent readings from the Bible, but you will never, never, ever No, Jesus, unless the Holy Spirit comes to live in your mind and heart and opens your eyes to see. You see what the confession is saying? What does that mean? It means that the only thing that can persuade us of the authority of the Scripture is God. And therefore, that is the most powerful evidence that it is the Word of God. Now, section 6 is on the sufficiency of Scripture. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from it unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. Now, if you write a sentence as long as that in your National 5 English, you'll get minus 3. What does it mean? Well, it just means this. It means that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, which means all things necessary for everything, is in Scripture. We don't need to have any other books on our shelves. Sufficient Scripture is entirely sufficient. The Bible is all we need. And it speaks to us either by expressly setting down stuff, like we have seen when we've studied 1 Thessalonians about how we are to live, or by setting down stuff that may be deduced from Scripture. So, for example, it doesn't say in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 4, that you shall not park on a double yellow line. But it does say, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And that's what it means, I think, by deducing from Scripture. That doesn't mean to say 
that you do not need the Holy Spirit to make you see and understand. It says that again. And then at the end of that section, it says that, look, there are some stuff that we're just not entirely prescriptive about, like worship or government in churches. And you need to take common sense and the principles of Scripture and say, here we are in a building. What do we do and where do we put stuff? I guess the principles of Scripture would say you put a lectern in the middle of the room with a preacher behind it and the Word of God on a Sunday reflects the fact that the church is ruled by the Word of God in global terms. Yep. And when you have communion, you put the table down there on the ground. It's symbolic. That's what it means to use Scripture's principles to reflect what you do. And how do we govern ourselves as a church? Well, I guess Scripture would tell you don't do anything that's not in accordance with the basic principles of the Bible. But there were people in this room who have Presbyterian backgrounds, independent church backgrounds, Episcopal backgrounds, and I think all are justifiable in terms of government from Scripture. Section 7. How are we doing? We're all right. My worst ever preaching disaster is uh, preaching on uh, Daniel and the lion's den. And by the time it, we were well past the time to finish, we didn't even have Daniel in the den, let alone out. <laughs> so we had to rush him in and rush him out. You can't leave him in there overnight. Now, this is wonderful. Think of your children. Number seven. All things in Scripture are not alike plain. I mean, I think we all say amen to that. Nor alike clear unto uh, all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of Scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned in due course of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding. And what this is saying is that Graham and Morag's little boy, Lewis, when he's about five, if he can grasp the ABCs and do his two times table, he can understand all that is necessary to be saved and a child of God. That's a wonderful... It's called the perpiscuity of Scripture. It means you do not need a degree to understand what is necessary for salvation. Christ died for our sins. It's the heart of the heart of Scripture. A little ch- I understood that as a five-year-old, and I believed it as a five-year-old, and that's the heart of faith, and nothing has really been added to that or subtracted from it since. Number eight, the authenticity and translation of Scripture. Let's not read it. What it means is that God inspired Scripture at one point in history, and he did it in Hebrew and he did it in Greek with a bit of Aramaic. Why? Because that's the language they spoke. The inspiration is not in the nature or the precise language. The inspiration is in the words. Therefore, and uh, I was sharing this with Richard and Jen yesterday, the Westminster Divines said, get out there and translate it. Now, in our country, that meant put it in English. So we could all understand that was a wonderful, wonderful thing that Tyndale did. Put it into the hands of us all. And then, of course, turn it into Ketuba and Minyanka, which is a language of Mali and so on and so forth. That's there. 
Section 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Here's a secret. You do not need a Bible commentary. You need the Bible. I have hundreds of books on my shelves. The one I turn to most of all is the Bible. When I'm stuck, I turn to other bits on the Bible. So this evening, Sam is preaching on Revelation. What did we do when we met this week to study Revelation? We thought, what's all this about? So we looked at Daniel and worked out what it was about. That's what it means. Scripture interprets Scripture. And then section 10 as we close. The supreme judge on religious controversies is the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. What a sobering comment that is for the church in the West, the church in Britain today, to take to heart. And may this be true of Chalmers now and in a hundred years, that all we do will rest, be determined by, judged by the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. So there we are at the end of chapter 1 of the Confession. Now I might be in a minority of one, but I hope you will agree this is valuable for us from time to time to look together at this. Why? For two reasons. One, just kind of feel what's in your hands. Yeah? It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and just as I said that, somebody who's very recently been converted smiled the clearest when I said it. Look what's in your hands. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that God has made himself absolutely clear to us in his word. It's wonderful that it is everything we need, the whole counsel of God, concerning all that is necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. Never get used to having a Bible in your hands. There are many countries in the world where it is illegal to sit with a Bible on your lap. Never get used to it. The other reason that it's good to study this stuff is that all of history since Christ lived on the earth has proved this one thing, that the Word of God which is necessary for salvation. Changes people, changes families, changes churches, changes nations. And nothing else, nothing else ever will. So hold fast to the Word of God that God has inspired. And pray with expectant hearts that God will use that to bring many, many people in our nation, in our city, to faith in Jesus. Throw it over. Put yourself over it as authority. And there will, in the end, be no spiritual life. Let's pray. Father God, we've uh, had to go through that at breakneck pace, but we pray that we will go and study it, think about it, distill it in our minds and hearts, and reflect on the fundamentally important principles therein. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.